0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host Schneer Zalman Newfield. Today, nearly today, uh, nearly any group or nation with violence in its past has constructed or is planning a. Uh, Memorial Museum as a mechanism for confronting past trauma, often together with truth commissions, trials, and or other symbolic or material reparations. In Exhibiting Atrocity, Memorial Museums and the Politics of Past Violence, published by Rutgers University Press in 2018, Amy Sedaro documents the emergence of the Memorial Museum as a new cultural form of commemoration and analyzes its use in efforts to come to terms with past political violence and to promote democracy and human rights. Amy Sedaro is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, the City University of New York, and is a, a dear colleague and a friend of mine, and I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome, Amy.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Salman.
1: So, to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
0: Um, Sure. It was kind of a long and circuitous path um, to this work and to sociology in general. Um, But I have long and always had an interest in culture and, you know, in particular in the intersection of culture and politics. Um, but I started out on kind of a different path. I started out in theater and I thought I was going to be a costume designer and, um, actually then 9-11 happened and I was in New York City and I realized that I didn't have a very good set of frameworks for understanding, um, that event and kind of the aftermath. And so I decided to go to graduate school. Um, I... You know, had this kind of long lasting interest in museums and in graduate school, took a couple of classes on memory um, and ended up writing a master's thesis on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, focusing on um, Romani efforts to get representation in the museum and thinking about kind of the, the politics of representation and, um, you know, the competition of victims, as people refer to it. Um, And that project led me to think more deeply about um, this new form of museum that, you know, is both memorial and museum. And that kind of laid the groundwork for a dissertation on the topic and then um, this book exhibiting, exhibiting atrocity.
1: Terrific. Well, thank you for that. I did not know about the your history of costume design and theater. So <laughs> you think you know a person. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: it was a long, long, crazy path here.
1: <laughs> well, we're so glad you made this path and that uh, you're here now. Um, so speaking of museums, could you tell us a little more about what is distinct about memorial museums Uh um, uh, compared to a sort of regular museum that people might be familiar with?
0: Yeah, so um, in the book and, you know, through my research on these museums, I um, have found that they take on a kind of hybrid form. Um, so they are a museum, but they're also memorial. And so, you know, a traditional museum, if we're thinking like kind of 19th century art museums or history museums or, um, you know, natural history museums. Um, their focus tends to be on, you know, collecting and displaying objects, um, educating the public, um, about those objects. Um, and memorial museums, are kind of a departure from that. They are history museums in that they display objects and they educate about history. They construct historical narratives, but they also are kind of infused with memory. So most of them have a memorial as part of the museum, some kind of commemorative um, element, you know, structured into the museum, um, and they use other kinds of memory um, tropes or practices so that um, the, the past that they're telling about is meant to kind of come alive for visitors um, in an experiential and kind of immersive, affective um, experience of the museum. So, their combination of kind of history and memory and the museological, like educative functions, together with the commemorative, um, you know, functions of a memorial, um, presents us with this kind of new form of museum. But then, what I think is really knew about them and kind of what's most important about what they're intended to be and do is that through this combination of history and memory and education and commemoration, their intention is to morally transform visitors, to you know, lead visitors through this experience of the path that in some way changes their attitudes and behaviors. And so um, this this sort of effort to ethically transform people is something um, new in museums. Of course, they've always, you know, tried to bolster national identity and, um, you know, patriotism. But the, the ethical component of these, I think, is something that's very new,
1: I see. Um so to step back a little bit, what is the memory boom of the past few decades and how does this relate to the effort to come to terms with past violence and atrocities uh, through museums?
0: Um yeah, that's a that's a big question. That's a, you know, a big um kind of shift in perspective um that is um kind of a a centerpiece of like the study of memory today is understanding this, um, this shift in society's orientations from being kind of um, oriented toward the future and, you know, rooted in ideas of like progress and putting the past behind us um, to an emphasis on the past. And um, I mean, this, you know, I think most of the literature kind of traces the beginnings of this to the first half of the 20th century and especially the um, the Holocaust and World War II and the aftermath and a realization that, you know, the promise and like progress of modernity was, you know, kind of empty and that um, rather than, you know, kind of putting the past behind us, declaring victory and, you know, moving toward the glorious future of the nation, the past was something that had to be reckoned with. Um, and so there's this, you know, kind of boom of interest in memory in the past, but it's also specifically an interest in memory of, you know, past violence, the negative past, um, memory of, you um, you know, the wrongs of the past and with that, an effort to try to kind of come to terms with it. Um, and so, you know, it can kind of, I mean, it's something that you know, took decades over the course of the 20th century, but by the end of the 20th century, um, this memory boom resulted in all kinds of mechanisms for, you know, trying to come to terms with the past and, you um, you know, deal with the, the violence and um, atrocities of the past.
1: Right. And to what extent does your research indicate that the efforts to come to terms with the past is still in control of nations, of the, in, in the control of nation states rather than a kind of post-national memory culture?
0: So this, um, you know, as I like set out to do this research, I was particularly interested in kind of a like global, um, transcultural like spread of of commemorative forms and, and ideas and memories, um, and and this idea of kind of like a um, you know transcultural um, space in which, you know, memory of this negative past, um, uh, circulates. Um, when I got into like the actual, like research on these institutions, <laughs> I realized that in fact, um, all of them that I profile in my book and the many others that I've looked at, although not necessarily all of them, but, um, you know, pretty much all of them are national projects um, implemented by the nation state or with like close ties and funding from the nation state. Um, And ultimately, you know, reproducing a lot of those hegemonic um, national narratives that the you know the form and and the promise of this memory boom um, seemed to suggest might be breaking down and so that was kind of a, a disappointment for me realizing <laughs> that it still is largely the nation state that is um, you know constructing historical narratives and um, you know creating like the dominant commemorative, um, and memorial cultures um, of contemporary societies today.
1: Right. So let's look at uh, some of these examples that you investigate in your in your work. To begin with, when was the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington founded, and why do some scholars view it as the standard for dealing with the past with past violence?
0: Yeah. So the um, Holocaust Museum. Um, was sort of initially, I guess, like the sort of earliest moment of its, um, you know, conception was um, in 1978. I um, I'm pretty sure that was here year <laughs> um, under the Carter administration, um, and Carter formed like a presidential commission to um, consider, you know, a Holocaust, mem- a national Holocaust memorial, um, and this was a political decision. The Carter administration. Um, was kind of worried about attracting Jewish voters and thought that this would be one way to, um, you know, to sort of expand the appeal of the administration. Um, and so in 1978, this commission was formed and it would take almost like 20 years to build the museum. The, the, you know, commission went through many different ideas about, you know, an appropriate memorial, um, many different sort of debates about what this would look like in the American context, um, who would be, you know, represented, um, in and by this memorial. And ultimately this, you know, kind of long drawn out complicated process resulted in this memorial museum. Um, and I think the reason that I and other scholars, um, see this as kind of the model for other memorial museums um, is in part because it's the first self-described memorial museum so the you know the founders um, you know in this long process of its creation um, you know kind of didn't feel that a memorial was enough um, that there had to be some kind of museological component. But that, you know, simply telling the history wouldn't be enough to impart the kind of, you know, message that they wanted to. And so, you know, created very like consciously this hybrid form um, and even put that into its name. And so, you know, it's um, in many ways like the first self-defined memorial museum. And this combination of memorial and museum was very carefully, very deliberately um, thought through and planned out by its creators. Um, of course, the you know the roots of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum go back to um, you know I, I trace in the book kind of um, the initial efforts to commemorate um, the Holocaust um, in you know the camps immediately after their liberation and this kind of dual imperative to remember, but also to preserve evidence of the past, of what, you know, had happened. Um, So again, this kind of like dual imperative of like memory and history, um, providing the basis for commemoration. And so... You know, these sort of initial efforts to commemorate um, developed into museums, you know, like at, at the former camps in Europe, um, the institution of Yad Vashem, which um, in many ways is really kind of the first memorial museum in that it combines, you know, the you know historical narrative, the commemorative um, components in Israel. I'm sorry, in Israel and. Um, but then I think with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, um, uh, this this form kind of developed in the most you know deliberate, deliberate and um, uh, you know self conscious way. Um, then set it you know becoming a model for similar museums around the world.
1: Right, and what are some of the key features of the? A memorial museum in in washington uh that that kind of um embody this dual purpose for the institution
0: yeah definitely um and so that um you know your question and my answer to this question I think speak to the other reason that this museum really has become a model. Um, is because many of the exhibitionary practices and tropes um, that are used in this museum have been replicated around the world in other memorial museums. Um, so um, all of the memorial museums that I have, you know, researched and, and written about um, have, you know, historical exhibitions that um, tell, you know, in a, in a pretty traditional museum format, like a, you know, chronological history of the genocide or the atrocity that they're focusing on um, using, you know, photographs and documents and video and um, a lot, you know, a lot of kind of standard um, museum um, practices in their displays. Um in addition to, you know, the historical exhibit that leads visitors through, you know, the story that they are telling, um, as I kind of mentioned, memorial museums have um, memorials as part of their spaces. And so the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has a Hall of Remembrance, um, Uh, all of the others that we'll probably get (laughs) to talk about from the book have their own kind of memorial components. Um, And um, and this also kind of extends into the exhibits in the museum. And so um, the U.S. Holocaust Museum um, uses a lot of... um, photographs of, um, victims. Um, the most kind of notable example of this in the Holocaust Memorial Museum is the, um, the tower of, um, tower oh. of faces. I think it's called in the, um, in the historical exhibit that is a collection of photographs from a shtetl in, um, Lithuania that, um, was was destroyed by the Nazis and these photographs made their way into the museum and really kind of um, set a precedent for other museums to include photographs um, of the victims in life um, as a way of, you know giving giving voice and humanity um, and individualism to these victims that otherwise, you know, perhaps get subsumed by the numbers and the history that's being told. Um, So the use of photographs, um, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has kind of um, pioneered the use of testimony, video testimony in museums. And so that's a really important part of um, the exhibits um, kind of structured into an experience of the Holocaust Museum is, um, you know, seeing this video testimony. And that's something that's been replicated um, by other memorial museums around the world. Um, and then the other um, sort of big aspect of the the exhibits is um, They're experiential and affective um, uh, techniques that really kind of draw the visitor into an experience of the history. And so um, the Holocaust Museum, and I don't know now after COVID if this is still happening, but, um, you know, a visitor would receive an ID card of... um, you know, you know, a, a real figure from history um, as a kind of um, you know a, an individual to accompany them on their journey and um, help them identify with the you know the victims um, of the Holocaust um, in the historical exhibit. You know, you make your way through the you know the kind of rise of the Nazis and this history and then um, are kind of like thrust into an experience of the Holocaust. Um, There's, you know, an actual rail car of the type that would have been used to transport visitor or sorry, victims um, that visitors walk through in the museum. There's, you know, a a recreation of the Auschwitz sign, there are barracks from Auschwitz um, to kind of give visitors a feeling of, um, of being there. Right. And, and having their own experience of that history. And I think this is, um, you know, done in other museums in other ways, of course, but um, I think this is really kind of central to the work of a memorial museum. It's not enough to just kind of tell the history and teach the history, but, The creators of these these museums, you know, really want visitors to experience and have an affective um, response to this history, you know, with the belief that that will help to ethically impact them to, you know, shape their attitudes and beliefs and come away, um, you know, embracing an ethic of never again.
1: Right. And given what you said earlier about... um... How museums, how you found that museums uh, were really very much tied to nation states and and the particulars of those nation states. Um, What was the particular political and cultural context uh, of the creation of the Holocaust Museum in Washington?
0: Oh, it was a very long, drawn out, um, kind of, I mean, a political battle in many ways. Um, So I mentioned that I kind of came to memorial museums um, as a specific form through um, a thesis that I wrote on Romani representation in the museum, on the efforts of Roma and Sinti, um, you know, people, descendants to, like, be represented in the story that the museum tells. Um, And and it wasn't just Roma. There were many other groups that um, wanted representation, you know, in that museum. Um, You know, the Armenians um, thought the Armenian genocide should be a part of the telling of that story, um, you know, as a kind of precedent to the Holocaust. there um, were you know, Ukrainian Americans who thought that, you know, their um, experience in the Holocaust should be, you know, talked about also in terms of the Holodomor, the, um, you know, kind of forced um, famine of Ukraine under the Soviets. Um, and so in the American context, um, you know, commemorating the Holocaust in a museum just off of the national mall became very much a debate about representation and, you know, different group identities um, in the U S and their desire to have some kind of like national representation, um, you know, in, in the nation's capital. Um, And so the kind of big debate that um, dominated um, the creation of the Holocaust Museum was the debate um, over the uniqueness of the Holocaust and whether the museum would kind of embrace, you know, the um, belief that the Holocaust was um, unique as, you know, the... um, murder of, you know, the Jewish people, or whether to kind of expand that understanding to the more universalist understanding of, um, you know, the the many different victim groups of the Holocaust. Um, and the decision ultimately was to focus on the uniqueness of the Holocaust, um, while acknowledging, you know, kind of other... Um, I'm forgetting now the words that they used, but other other victim groups that were, you know, near the center of the Holocaust, but um, but not targeted in the same way that um, European Jews were.
1: All right, and I'm just curious, very briefly, um, um, like to what extent uh, was this outcome this this resolution of this? Uh, um, you know, uh, um, disagreement or, or 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 discussion around the the kinds of representation that should happen at the museum. To what extent was that tied to? Uh, you know, who was involved in, um, you know, who were the main, you know, stakeholders or the main players in this, you know, in this process? Like, why did it turn out that way, in other
0: words? (laughs) Yeah, and so a lot of this, um, you know, goes back to, like, the presidential commission um, that, you know, was formed under the Carter administration and um, as the plans for the museum developed and as more and more groups demanded, Some kind of representation, you know, part of that representation for them was like a seat on the commission, right, to be part of the planning for this. And so there was like, a time when the commission was kind of expanding. And and there was a lot of backlash to that. There were a lot of commissioners, um, you know, especially Jewish commissioners who embraced the um, uniqueness of the Holocaust, who um, thought that something was being lost in the expansion of the Commission to include, you know, representatives of these other groups, and then ultimately, you know, would be lost in the creation of the museum um, if it, you know, acknowledged all of these other groups, but also atrocities that that they were vying for, um, and so. You know, it's it's a presidential commission. It's completely political. <laughs> it's you know appointees by the administ- you know the current administration, um, and so you know the debates about representation in the museum, like we're, were ultimately debates um, or like kind of fundamentally debates, or begin with the debates about who is sitting on this commission and making these decisions and this then of course um, I mean my research is shifting now and I've been um, I'm working on um, a book about museums that address slavery and so the new national museum of African-American history and culture in Washington um, you know these debates about the Holocaust museum extend well beyond the Holocaust to you know other groups in American society that have, um, traumas and atrocities in their past that they want to see represented in the nation's capital. And, um, so these debates are ongoing, (laughs) (laughs) even though the Holocaust museum is very much, um, you know, established, um,
1: all right, all right. Well, really fascinating. I think it, you know, we could we could spend the whole time just talking about the Holocaust Museum, but there is so much more in your book uh, and so many other cases that we want to uh, try to address uh, at least uh, to some extent. But I think even just looking at the Holocaust Museum, we could begin to see how complex these issues are, that it's not just about, you know, there's a building and then there's exhibits in the building, you know, but it really comes down to profound questions about, uh, about representation, about justice, about history, about the interpretation of history, about money, about power. There's a lot of uh, things that come into play when you're looking at, or thinking about uh, uh, museums and
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's been part of, um, you know, this memory boom. Part of it, of course, is, you know, like reckoning with um, atrocities like the Holocaust. But part of it also has been, you know, the growing power and voice of groups that have been marginalized, you know, to make demands that their stories are told in, in public spaces and museums are really really important public spaces um you know for groups that are looking for recognition and representation um and you know looking for some kind of um you know dedicated public space for their stories and so um i think the you know the holocaust museum is a wonderful little kind of micro microcosmic <laughs> study for um, all kinds of larger debates about, um, you know, representation and, um, and identity. And as you mentioned, you know, money <laughs> and power <laughs> are at the center of all of this, for sure.
1: Right. Well, shifting to another complicated story, uh, what is the terror haza in Budapest and what history does it seek to tell?
0: So the Haza or the House of Terror um, in English, is um, a museum in central Budapest in Hungary um, that was created in a, a historic site, a building that had been used um, both by um, the um, Nazi occupiers and the the Hungarian arrow cross that collaborated. Um, and then also with the, um, had been used by the communist secret police as kind of a headquarters. And so it's a building that kind of has all of this historical significance, a really beautiful building. Um, but the museum was created by um, Victor Orban um, back in 2002. And that sounds like a long time ago, but you will probably recognize his name (laughs) um, uh, because he continues to be um, the leader of um, Hungary today. Um, And in 2002, Orban was in the middle of like kind of a fierce reelection. And um, so he created this um, House of Terror as um, a part of his efforts to maintain power in Hungary. And so it is, um, he actually ended up losing that election, but then being reelected in 2010 and has pretty much had a tight grip on um, Hungarian politics since then. Um, so the museum is meant to tell the um, kind of double story of Hungarian trauma Um under Nazi occupation and then under Soviet occupation. And so it's meant to be a museum, you know, telling the history of fascism and communism in Hungary. Um, But Orban, as a right-wing leader who has kind of only doubled down more and more on his right-wing leadership, Um, kind of from the start envisioned and created the museum to focus much more on um, communism in Hungary and really kind of tell this unbalanced story that um, uh, presents, you know, Hungary and Hungarians as um, victims of both of these regimes, but especially the communist regime um, and really kind of downplays um, the Holocaust and certainly downplays Hungarian complicity. Um, Hungary had a really powerful fascist party <laughs> that collaborated um, with the Nazis, um, and that is very much downplayed in this museum. So it's it's kind of a political statement meant to um, support Orban and, and his... Um, xenophobic and anti-Semitic policies that are continuing today.
1: Right. And I'm just curious, given that the museum has now been up and running for for some time, is there a sense of how kind of average Hungarians respond to the museum and especially to what you're describing as a kind of deliberate distortion of Hungarian history, particularly the history of Hungary under uh, under the uh, fascism during World War II?
0: Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I, um, you know, unfortunately, like in my book was not able to really delve into how visitors respond, um, you know, to these museums. So I haven't conducted any kind of in-depth visitor research. Um, but you know, all of this past I think is extremely fraught in Hungary, but just like here, I think there's a lot of political division and, um, You know, the supporters of Orban, I think, um, you know, fall in line with this historical, you know, revisionism, which it really is. Um, There is a Holocaust Museum in Budapest that is also, it's not nearly as sensational and I'm not sure it's like quite as, you know, popular an attraction um, but I know it's it's very well respected and I know that that is where people go who really want to seek a better understanding of the Holocaust in Hungary um, and you know the the experience of Budapest and Hungary um, under fascism. Um, there were plans before the pandemic and I don't think that anything has, um, has come out of this yet, anything like concrete, but there were plans to buy Orban and his kind of team of, um, historical revisionists, (laughs) um, to create a kind of sister Holocaust museum to the house of terror that is to be called the house of fates. And, um, and, you know, really just kind of like double down on revising the history of the Holocaust in Hungary. Um, But I don't think that I don't think that it ever came to fruition. Um, But I think, you know, just the kind of plan to create this sister museum, which would go even further to, you know, in, even further in terms of like revising this history and trying to shape and reshape the narrative um, speaks to Orban's power um, and his kind of grip on Hungarian society, but also historical memory in Hungary.
1: Um, Uh, It seems to, to, to really highlight uh, what we were speaking about uh, earlier about how nation states are both profoundly invested in the, 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 the production or, 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 or celebration of you know uh, memory in their country. And at the same time they have uh, you know, tremendous capacity to do that. So other people might also really want to tell a different story, but might simply not have the, the, the capacity, the infrastructure, the money, uh, the capability to, to carry out that kind of um, uh, memorialization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so um, my book really focuses on, um, I think, as I said before, like state sponsored initiatives or at least like museums like the Holocaust Museum in D.C. that was created through the, you know, a public private partnership and receives a lot of public funding um, so like state-sponsored initiatives or like very prominent national museums, um, there are others that, you know, like the Holocaust Museum in Budapest that, um, you know, tend to be smaller, tend to be private um, in terms of the funding they receive um, and are more able to, you know, tell counter histories and narratives and, you know, stories that don't adhere to the dominant, um, you know, historical narratives, Um, but because they're smaller and not as well-funded, they tend to be less prominent and probably not receive, you know, the same kind of um, number of visitors. Um, They're more precarious um, in what they're able to do because of limited funding, So this is part of why the nation state, you know, continues to really dominate because, um, you know, it has the resources at its disposal to create these really prominent institutions.
1: Right. Right. And speaking of another nation state, uh, what is the Kigali Genocide Memorial Center and when was it founded?
0: So the Kigali Genocide Memorial Center is in Kigali, Rwanda. Um, It was founded in 2004 on the kind of 10th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, um, which occurred in 1994 and was, you know, this extremely horrible, um, you know, atrocity. It took place over the course of about 100 days. Where somewhere between eight hundred thousand to like a million Tutsis were murdered by by their neighbors in many cases, um, and so the Kigali Center um, was created by a British organization called the Aegis Trust, which um, had which opened like a, a Holocaust um, center in the UK. And um, then kind of expanded their work to become this kind of anti-genocide organization, doing a lot of work in Africa. And so they worked on the um, Cape Town Holocaust Memorial Museum or Holocaust Museum. Um, And then were invited by... um, the mayor of Kigali, I think like the National Cultural Commission to come to Rwanda and help, um, help figure out how to create a national museum um, in Kigali to remember the genocide. Um, and so, you know, I think the story of the Kigali Center is a useful one for thinking about the, you know, transnational and kind of global spread of these forms because, um, You know, it was created by a British organization that had, you know, visited Yad Vashem in Israel, visited the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, um, and and visited sites in Germany and brought, you know, these um, ideas and um, exhibitionary practices to the Rwandan context. Um, And so the museum is in Kigali, um, it's not on a historic site, which differentiates it from other um, Rwandan genocide memorials, which are typically like at the site of um, usually a mass murder. Most of them are in churches or schools. Um, and so it's a kind of like neutral site on a hill overlooking um, the city of Kigali. Kigali. Um, the museum does hold mass graves of around 250,000 individuals, um, who were found in and around Kigali and then were reinterred at the museum site. And so it's not, you know, a site on which mass murder happened, but it's kind of become a site on which, um, you know, this mass murder is really heavily symbolically, um, present. Um, And the museum um, tells the story of the Rwandan genocide. It also has an exhibit um, on other 20th century genocides. So it kind of frames Rwanda, um, you know, in terms of the larger issue of genocide, starting with um, the genocide of the Herero people by the Germans and what is today Namibia. There is, you know, kind of extensive exhibit on the Holocaust. Um, There's um, the Cambodian genocide is included. Um, So it's in many ways kind of the most globally contextualized um, and framed um, at this museum in Rwanda.
1: And, and, um... Um how does the politics of Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, relate to the mission of the museum?
0: Yeah, so that's a good, a really good question and a really fraught question that just kind of gets more and more complicated, I think, every year that Kagame is in power. Um, and so... You know, on the one hand, Rwanda has made incredible strides in, you know, kind of putting the past behind it and moving forward and becoming, you know, a really, um, you know, relatively well-functioning, well-organized, orderly, um, you know, uh, safe (laughs) nation state that is really um, it's kind of like a darling of the international community because um, Paul Kagame, the president, has done such a good job in kind of moving Rwanda forward into the 21st century. Um, but things are not uh, <laughs> as cheery as they seem from the outside. Um, so Paul Kagame was... Um, a leader of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, um, which was a Tutsi rebel group that had um, kind of fled Rwanda before the genocide and was, you know, waging kind of guerrilla warfare on um, the Hutu leadership. Um, and then the genocide happened um, and the international community kind of looked away, did not try any kind of intervention, um, basically just allowed it to happen. And the Rwandan patriotic front um, essentially ended the genocide, kind of took back the country um, from the Hutu. Um, And so Kagame ultimately kind of found his way into um, power now today as president. He's been president for a very long time. Um, And, and so, you know, the story from the outside is, um, you know, a pretty compelling story of, you know, uh, this, you know, uh, group of ousted Tutsis, you know, coming back, um, restoring order in Rwanda and, um, you know, moving the country forward under the leadership of this, you know, great um, former general of the RPF. Um, in fact, um, many of the laws that Kagame has put into place to, to maintain order in Rwanda, at least that's what the, you know, kind of purported role of these laws is, um, are laws that um, essentially are kind of flexible enough to, like, punish any opposition to Kagame and to his regime, So, for example, um, ethnicity has been abolished in Rwanda. You are not allowed to be Tutsi or Hutu in Rwanda today. Um, Everybody, of course, still knows what they are, what everybody else is. um, But officially it's abolished. Um, But this has kind of allowed Kagame and his regime to you know, create an administration um, that is entirely Tutsi, that has, you know, left no space for Hutu um, in any kind of position of power. And Hutus, you know, are the majority of Rwandan society, a kind of vast majority. Um, there are laws in Rwanda against genocide ideology and, you know, divisionism, But these are really ill-defined. And so anyone who, you know, questions the official dominant narrative of the genocide um, can be imprisoned um, and some people meet worse fates. Um, I think the like really famous example of this right now is the case of um, Paul Rusesabaginia, who was made famous um, as the hotelier in the Hollywood film Hotel Rwanda, who um, has just been convicted in Rwanda of terrorist activities um, because he has been an outspoken critic of um, Kagame and his regime. Um, And so there are a lot of... um, You know, a lot of the history of violence in Rwanda has been really kind of silenced by, um, you know, the official narrative of the Rwandan genocide, um, which, you know, basically argues that Hutus killed Tutsis, and and that's the end of the story. Um, The RPF committed many atrocities um, in Rwanda um, you know, during the genocide to end it, but then after the genocide as well, um, they committed atrocities in Congo. Um, so it's a very complicated story that gets kind of boiled down to like very, um, you know, black and white, easy to understand. Um, and the museum plays a big role in this. It tells a very kind of simplified story of the Rwandan genocide that adheres to, you know, the government's, um, Narrative, and this is true in the other memorial sites as well. That they, um, you know, kind of um, create this this historical memory of the genocide that supports the political goals of Kagame and his administration.
1: Right, right. And uh, shifting gears a bit, coming back uh, closer to home for us, uh, the National September Eleventh. A memorial museum opened in 2014, and it's just a few blocks away from uh, from the Borough Manhattan Community College, where we both uh, teach. Um, What does this museum tell us about the form of memorial museums in the 21st century?
0: Yeah, so that's um, that's the example that I kind of end with and I feel like it is a good kind of bookmark <laughs> from the beginning of the forum with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum to this um, you know, 21st century memorial museum. Um, and so the September 11th museum is very different from the others because um, most of the world <laughs> witnessed September 11th um, like, as it was happening. And of course now there are, Younger generations who um, were too young to remember, or who weren't even born um, on September 11th, but some of our know, students, <laughs> our students, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but like, as the museum was being created, they were very aware that you know most people, at least in the beginning, who would be visiting this museum, had witnessed September 11th, like through media. Um, and so this was kind of structured into the museum. They, they kind of felt it was a a very deliberative process that kind of did everything that you should do to create a really good memorial museum. Um, and, um, so one of the things that they decided was that it was, it was kind of too soon to make this like, you know, to kind of, historically interpret September 11th. Um, and because everybody had witnessed it anyway, they didn't really need to like, um, you know, kind of, um, dwell on this historical framing. And so they decided to kind of, um, like let individual stories tell the story of 9-11 and kind of acknowledge that it was so widely, um, witnessed, Um, and kind of allow this fragmentation of memory and experience to be like the dominant narrative in the, in the museum. Um, What this actually ended up looking like um, in the museum is kind of very different from what they intended because there's a historical exhibit and it really just focuses on the 102 minutes of September 11th, from the time the first plane hit the first tower to the time the second tower collapsed and that is kind of the focus there's this timeline that is kind of minute by minute telling you what was happening like in the air and on the ground um, on September 11th and then it is all of these like kind of individual memories so there are you know there are lots of videos with people like recounting their experiences there are a lot of audio recordings there are you know, like voicemail messages um, from people who were in the towers to their loved ones. There are recordings from the black boxes of the airplanes. Um, there are, you know, 911 calls. There are a lot of artifacts in the museum. Um, and it's this really like powerful experience of 9-11. You go to the museum and you kind of feel like you were there when 9-11 happened. Um What they didn't end up doing in their effort to kind of avoid, like, historicizing or politicizing 9-11, they don't give any context. So there's very little um, context for before 9-11 and why 9-11, you know, happened. Um, The historical exhibit begins with, like, the first plane hitting the first tower, like this, you know, out of the blue, um, which, you know, then kind of... um, uh, replicates this feeling that I think many had of like, how did this happen? Why? Um, so there's no real context for before. Um, and they also give basically no context for what has happened since. So there's, um, only like the sort of briefest passing mention of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's almost nothing about the war on terror. There's, um, you know, uh, I think just a tiny mention of the Patriot Act and, you know, what 9-11 has meant for civil liberties um, here at home. Um, And so ironically, you know, even though it was this long deliberative process that was meant to kind of follow all of the best practices for the creation of memorial museums, um, like the other. (laughs) So we've been talking about today, it ends up being this very kind of um political you know patriotic like nationalist um telling of the events of 9-11 um but as this you know 21st century memorial museum it's done um in a way that's really you know compelling and really kind of sophisticated um and and very slick how it how it does this and creates this experience
1: Well, thinking of the um, 9-11 Museum as a a model for future 21st century museums, do you think that that really... Capture something that they're going to be very slick, very sophisticated, and completely ahistorical and like completely uh, devoid of any contextualization. I mean, we know, of course, every historical event has a history. Nothing just, even airplanes don't just fall out of the sky. You know, there's things that led up to that uh, that could. Give at least some insights to explain what happened, uh, if not, you know, exactly always why it happened. Do um, uh, you think that this is is a kind of unfortunate model that we uh, other museums around the world are going to be replicating in the future decades?
0: I um, I actually think, and here I can be like a little bit hopeful <laughs> about the future. <clears throat> I think um, I was wrong to think that this was kind of a model, um, at least from where my new um, research is taking me, which is really good. And really, um, I, I hope I'm not yet like reading too much, um, like grafting too much hope onto all of this. But um, so. As I mentioned, I've I've kind of shifted now to look at how um, slavery and its legacies are remembered in a few new museums in the United States. And so I'm looking at the Smithsonian African-American History and Culture Museum, Um, but then also the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, which um, is, it kind of traces the history of racial injustice in this country from enslavement up to mass incarceration. Um, And so very unlike the 9-11 Museum, um, it covers, you know, centuries of history. And it also doesn't just like kind of leave the past in the past. In fact, it argues that slavery never ended, that it evolved to take on different forms. It evolved into lynching and racial terror. It evolved into segregation. And today it has evolved into mass incarceration. Um, and so that's an example of a museum that is very slick, right. That uses a lot of, you know, the same kind of, um, exhibition design, um, you know, practices and tropes that you'll see in the 9-11 museum and other museums, um, and even is more sophisticated in many ways. Um, but that I think is doing something really different in terms of, um, you know, intervening in like dominant historical narratives in our society. Um, but I should say that it's a, it's a private museum It doesn't get public funding, um, but it has become really prominent like on the national and international scene as um, a museum that really challenges um, hegemonic historical narratives. So I have hope that things are um, that we're not stuck with lots of 9-11 museums for the future, but that maybe like some of those practices um, of memorial museums can be, you know, used for museums that really do present counter histories and narratives um, and really can come a little bit closer to working for the kind of um, change and transformation that memorial museums um intend to
1: inspire. Right, well, given uh, uh, the, the uh, a possibility for being uh, really uh, pessimistic about uh, <laughs> the future as it relates to museums and understanding and interpreting the past and past violence, I, I think it's a wonderful place to end on a, on a, a positive note. So thank you, a- a- Amy, so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.